Hallo, mein Name ist Daniel Wachter und dies ist der Talent Magnet Institute Podcast. As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sippel Jr. Thank you for joining the Talent Magnet Institute podcast brought to you by Centennial and the Talent Magnet Institute. I am your host, Mike Sipple Jr., and I am extremely excited today to be here in the studio with a great friend and a longtime friend and client, Daniel Wachter, uh, currently Vice President of Global Sales and Marketing of Healthcare Packaging Division of Bemis. Um, Daniel, it's been a pleasure getting to know you over the years walking alongside of you, working alongside of you, and we want to welcome you to the studio this morning. Thanks for having me. So, Daniel, one of the things that um, has stood out from the very first time our team um, met you is your approach to leadership, your into nature to people, your desire to help build and put together the healthiest teams possible and very effective teams. Um, and I'd love for you to spend some time with us today. Let's start with your kind of your career journey. You know, what what has led you to be the leader that you are today? You know, starting back, walk us through where you're from, what's led you into the role that you have today. Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, after graduating from high school and my military service duty, I, I was a co-op student at the University of Stuttgart. And during that time, I already worked for a German company. Mm-hmm. Uh, packaging company called Storopack. So it's a company in protective packaging. So I was a co-op student for three years, which brought me to different locations in Germany, France, England. So I had already the chance to experience some international business culture. Uh, graduated in 1999, um, had the opportunity to become assistant to the chairman, uh, the owner at that time, which I did for two years. Uh, two years later, um, the generation change took place. So his son came into the business and took over the responsibility for it. At that time, I became head of corporate communication. So I was leading the internal and external communication uh, for Storepark globally. Um, so I was working at corporate at that time. And uh, two years later, got the opportunity on a short trip to Belgium to help to find out what was going on. There were some challenges and uh To make the long story short, it was my um, foot into the cold water of running a business. And I got the opportunity uh, to move to Brussels, uh, take over the responsibility for that business, uh, ran it and uh, turn it around. Um, That's something I did until 2010. Uh, Towards the end of that job, I made my executive MBA program as well. And the um, master thesis actually was the jump board for me to come to the United States as a next career step. So I came here in 2011 uh, as a VP market development uh, with the opportunity to run the national accounts program, but also to kind of implement my thesis, which was about disruptive technologies and forming a partnership with some disruptive technologies. Uh, I've been doing that for about a year and then got offered to become president of Storepark North America with the challenge and opportunity to also turn that business around and make it grow profitably. Uh, which I've succeeded uh, with the team uh, until uh, end of 2017 when uh, Storepark's ownership and I decided to mutually part ways. And uh, so that's my career path so far at Storepark from a co-op student to running Storepark's largest foreign investment uh, and turn that business around as well. I took a little bit of break as a consultant, as you know, over the last couple of months to take some good time to think about opening a new career chapter, uh, which which I did. And uh, yeah, I think that kind of highlights and summarizes my, my career path so far. Daniel, early on, you know, we always say that leaders didn't get to where they are by themselves. Yeah. Right. So early on, were there individuals that really had a hand in tucking you against them and helping you grow and develop and encouraging you and inspiring you? Absolutely. So my first boss, when I became assistant to the chairman, um, Hans Reichnecker, he founded Storopak in 1959 as a packaging company. So he was my first boss and had a major impact on 
understanding business, run business, um, understanding competitive relationships, uh, and basically allowing me a large freedom of action, which sounds nice, but which was very tough at the beginning because it was up to me to fill this space. And that was a little confusing at the very beginning with very little direction. Uh, and like I said, my dad is a teacher, so he did not really have the business experience, but the advice he gave to me to say, well, be of value, justify your salary. So um, find valuable things that you generate for customers, for the company. So when you're challenged that you can justify your job and your salary. And that was a very generic, generic advice, but I understood at that point of time that in business you have to generate value, otherwise you don't have any reason to exist professionally. And that was a tough school, I have to admit, at the very beginning, but I learned to feel that freedom of action. And I have to admit, in the meantime, I have a large desire of freedom of action. And I think I developed good capability to fill it with, with uh, strategies, with plans, with with plans to also give direction and leadership to other people to decide what are the right things to be done, how do we do them right, what is the value that we provide. Because at the end, without providing value to customers, they don't pay the bills, there is no money. So that's, I think, something I have learned very early from my first boss. Uh, I was very lucky to have other mentors who had confidence in my capability, also capability to learn, who gave me guidance, not necessarily in terms of how to perform the job, but one of my most influential mentors um, at the time in Belgium uh, taught me to take a break from time to time, get out of the hamster wheel, sit down and think, write and plan and identify key activities, link them to key people within the organization. Uh, so that was very influential. Um, I found very good inspiration. I'm not a big arts person in terms of paintings, uh, but I found great inspiration by Rubens, who was a great artist in, in Belgium, which really taught me the most important management lesson in terms of um, engaging and work with professionals and, and people who specialize in something based on a draft, means based on vision, mission, strategy, business plan, but have them do the job while you lead them according to the vision you have. But let them perform according to their strength. So I, I would say a good mix of my first boss, uh, some key mentors, but also inspiration from arts, for example, or from music as well, inspirations from, from philosophy. And as it relates to leading in a variety of countries and a variety of cultures, and um, can you share some insights with those that might be leading overseas, might be leading in the United States, have cross-cultural international environments? Are yeah. there areas where you've learned to really pick up on and how different cultures are motivated, how different types of individuals are motivated, or is it very similar? I mean, there are quite some similarities, but there are huge differences. And I would say um, the key lesson that I had the privilege to learn was to develop cultural awareness. Um, Theoretically, through a training, which uh, my wife and I got before we came to the United States, but then practically by doing it. And the, the key lesson in there was that we are all kind of the result and the product of the culture and environment we grew up, which, which anchors our values, which anchors our beliefs, which gives us a reference base. But on that reference base, we always kind of run into the trap to compare things. Now, moving abroad, so we moved to Belgium, then we moved to the United States. It's just not helping to compare everything all the time with Germany because it's not Germany, it's Belgium, it's the United States. And then there are things significantly different in culture, in business. Well, it does not help to complain about those differences because if you want to be successful in whatever country, you better, you're better off to accept those differences, but not by comparing all the time, but be smart to work with them, to work around them, to tweak them or whatever that is. Uh, so that cultural awareness and the awareness of those differences, uh, I think, have been key. And together with the awareness to adjust to different countries and markets because things may not be the same and to be very sensitive to find out. But finding out much more from an observing perspective, 
instead of a judging perspective. And judgment is always based on the reference base, which is that trap. So observation, I think, is key and try to stay, to, to stay as objective as, 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 as possible. And I think the third uh, I, I would mention here is really going out and see means to talk to people, to listen to people. Um, different countries, obviously, language is a key because language, I think, is the key to people's thinking. Uh, and um, altogether helps to identify those, those differences. And I think it's wrong to say that uh, a lot of things are always different, but there are always very specific things that makes the business needs and the business approach different, uh, and those need to be understood. And that takes an observative approach and one with that um, awareness. I love the concept you just shared that language is key to people's thinking yes. and understanding one another. We had a, a recent um, podcast interview with Shaquille Ahmed, and we talked about the whole theory of just knowing your neighbor, right. right? That getting to seek to understand where you are, not where you come from, but acknowledge that we all come from someplace that impacts our thinking and our behaviors. I, I like what you said. I mean, we are we are grounded somewhere from where we are coming from, and we have the tendency to compare with what we know, right? Mm -hmm. Means with what we know from where we come from. But this can be the trap and can really hinder to understand because it matters much more where we are and accept some of those realities and adjust business plans, strategies around those, whether we may like those things or not. One of the biggest challenges I, I found coming to the United States and doing business here, that you have a much higher legal risk of doing business than in Germany, for example, because the legal system is different. I can debate that day by day, whether I like that or not, doesn't matter. It is what it is. So we better be focused to find better ways to deal with that, you know, and, 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 and hedge that risk or deal differently with it. And these are exactly those differences where... Germany, it's not that risky. That statement doesn't help. Here it is what it is, and we need to deal with that and be smart about it. So, Daniel, you spent quite a bit of your career inside of family business. Yes. Um, and, again, I think the, the dynamic, if you look at the legacy of family businesses um, in North America, you may have a family business that, that has been around for 120 years or 60 years, and they're well-celebrated. In Europe, there may be family businesses that have been around for three, four, five hundred years, right. right? Are there learnings and education that you took up to really understand the dynamics of family business and the psychology and the impact of leadership being a non-family member in a family business? It's a very interesting question. I mean, I have to admit I've just worked for one family company for the first 21 years of my career. So I think I have a very good experience there, but at the same time, I cannot compare that much. Uh, but what I would say is that there is significant values that I value uh, that made it very enjoyable to work there, uh, also very productive to work there in terms of uh, trust, in terms of loyalty, in terms of uh, freedom of action. Mm. Uh, in that respect, I found that very interesting. Um, and 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 really um, helpful also, um, so that's that's really values that I, I learned to to, to appreciate. Um, I do not know whether there is so much difference whether this is then a, a family or private family owned or privately held company which is fifty or hundred years old or three or four hundred. I, I had the privilege to get to know a gentleman who runs a very successful hotel in in the southwest of Germany. That family business exists since 1789. And uh, I had the chance to visit him last year and we had conversations. I saw very big similarities. And I think they center around trust, loyalty, integrity, the involvement of the owner in, as an entrepreneur. Um, and I mean, that brings some challenges to your question as a non-family member to what level the ownership is involved in running the business day by day. And I've seen some companies struggling at one point of time where due to success, which is great, but which can also be a bad advisor mm -hmm. at times, um, 
there is maybe a different dynamics and a different need to further professionalize an organization, which I think is a challenging point that size, success, uh, a spread of the business internationally, for example, requires to build a management team around the entrepreneur, around the owner, um, that is sometimes bringing quite some of that tension where the entrepreneur cannot be that person everywhere all over the place at any, any given point of time. So I've, I've seen some of those challenges there where maybe such companies have bigger challenges to scale the business to a certain respect because uh, it may need to be further professionalized with a good team of non-family members who are managing the business. Well, you had the pleasure of working. It sounds like the family valued you as a leader. Um, the dynamic of being able to have operate as a family business to be able to get and scale to the size where you have family, where you have operations in a variety of different parts of the world. That whole freedom of action you um, commented as a part of the value and that you value is a significant part of a company being able to scale, right? Right. You can't right. be involved in everything. No. Um, and having worked with family businesses and being one yeah. um, with Centennial, you know, I know even my dad who took over from the original family that started Centennial, he took over when um, the husband died in a fatal accident. Um, but they had complete freedom of action for my father to run the organization and lead the organization, uh, and not many do. Yeah. You know, there's a fear around that. Right, and and I mean, um, that freedom of action also, um, uh, I, I think it's a key to success, but at the same time, it's something very difficult to handle also, because um, if, if, I, if I refer back to my role at Storopark for North America, uh, far away, largest foreign direct investment, a large organization, big market, big growth, um, I personally always took kind of the philosophy to run that business like it would be my own. But I always had to discipline myself to not get into the trap that it is my business because it was not my business, my company. So that's a very difficult balance at times, uh, including conversations with the owners where you can have very different opinions. What are the right things to be done and how are they to be done? And that's sometimes a fine line and a difficult balance to really... Uh, keep in mind, which sometimes end in agreements, which can end up in disagreements. Uh, and uh, so that freedom of action in that respect, that's what I want to say, has those both sides where that good balance with the ownership, I think, is always one uh, very important to to maintain. So let's talk a little bit about of our our introduction to yourself. You were um, coming you were coming to the United States to to serve in a key leadership role. Um, I remember the first conversation that our team had with you walking away going, that's a leader, right? You're, you had vision. You were able to clearly articulate that vision. You were able to engage um, with those that you were calling in to help support that vision, um, to elevate your team, to put the right pieces and strategies in place to grow and successfully did that with an incredible team of leaders and talent that you couldn't just go out and, you know, it wasn't necessarily an environment where everyone was coming to you. You shifted the brand with your key leaders to what we would say, become a talent magnet and help get the right people in place. Could you walk us through a little bit of that journey of walking into an environment that isn't as healthy as you need it to be, and then beginning to put the strategies and the vision and the clarity in place um, to really help elevate an organization to reach its fullest potential? Yeah. Starting to answer the question, probably I'll refer back to one of my enlightening experiences at the Rubens House in Antwerp. Mm. Uh, at that time, I was I was uh, trying to get the turnaround done of that business in Belgium. And I was kind of in a trap. I tried to do everything. I tried to be everywhere. I tried to take all the decisions. I tried to answer all the questions I got asked and so on. And here I came to that Rubens house and learned that he was an artist who was very successful during lifetime and sold more paintings than he could ever paint himself. So, well, did he cheat or how did he get that done? Long story short, what I've learned is he was very strong to draft, means to provide the idea and the concept of a painting, but then he delegated to pros, to specialists, and made that draft and the painting circulate from 
specialist to specialist to specialist, and at the end gave his final touch. And while the specialists were working on the paintings, he was standing sometimes next to them, but not painting himself, but sharing with him his vision, the idea, what he wants as an outcome. So the point I want to make, the key epiphany I had from that is, it is a lot about me, but it's not about me. I'm just one person. I'm not the smartest. So I better surround myself, number one, with really very smart people who are very strong in their respective domain, number one. Number two, finding the right people and put them at the right place, I should pay, put them at place based on their strength, not on their weakness. We all have our weakness, but people excel when you really allow them to perform based on their strength. And third, I've learned over the years by having the right people at the right place with the respective strength, by enabling, empowering, and encouraging them, this is where the best out of their motivation really comes up to the surface and based on strength where the best performance really comes out there. And um, the turnaround that I had to accomplish here in North America, at that time I was one out of 250 people in a large country, large geography, um, the largest market in the world. Who am I to think that it's just going to be me as the president to turn this thing around. I needed more horses in front of the wagon to pull it, but have strong horses. That means the right people at the right place with the strength and seeing myself much more in a role, enabling, empowering, and encourage them to be the professionals and the specialists that I hired them for. And by the way, not doing that just with my direct reports, but encourage them to surround themselves based on exactly the same philosophy and therefore multiply the efforts and make the turnaround a scalable thing and not just bottleneck me or bottle, bottleneck themselves. Does it make sense yeah, to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think the concepts of we all know we need to get the right people, but having the ability to set the vision and the inspiration and the voice, the inflection for people to be able to, I've had people walk out of interviews with you right. that have shared with us that I'd walk through a wall with him, yeah. right? He is that he brings that conviction. I think those leaders and listeners hearing this conversation, that understanding that your emotions and excitement and vision of what can be and will be right. comes out when you speak to others, right? Right, And we all technically know that, but if you don't believe in what you're selling, yeah. people will pick up on it. Yeah. And the inverse is accurate, that if you do believe, people will say, you know, I don't know how we're going to get there, yeah. but I want to be on this leader's team. Yeah. So if I refer again to that example of Rubens, it needs a good draft. That means a good concept and idea. And if translate that to the business world, what are our values? What is the vision? What's the mission of our business? What's our strategy? What's the business plan? What's our value proposition? Why should people buy from us? And yes, have that conviction and that drive to make a difference in the marketplace, to make a difference to customers. So it needs that plan, it needs that vision. And I think this, and that's what I always saw my key contribution as a leader, uh, to be very specific, to be very clear, and based on that then enable, empower, and encourage them to perform their profession. Like Rubens did with the specialist who painted the battle, who painted nature, but he did not just let them do paint. He sometimes stood next to them and directed or conducted them, but not by painting himself, but giving them what I would call leadership or like the conductor of an orchestra who kind of not plays an instrument, but plays the orchestra and gives that guidance to, to, to the musicians there. And that's those two analogies I like where I took a lot of inspiration in developing my leadership capability. And what I found, um, Mike, is that that this was the most motivating thing that I saw that I could do as a leader to let people perform based on their skill set and strength and trying to find their intrinsic motivation and give them then freedom of action, taking them serious, challenge and allow them to take decisions and by the way, take a very strong stand on giving such kind of leadership to their people as well. And I, we will share for those listening about um, a link to Ruben's house in Antwerp. 
um, in the show notes, I think it's, it's so encouraging to hear those personal pivots, right? It sounds like that you walked into that environment in some level of emotional frustration and seeking clarity, but not knowing where you would find it. No, exactly. Not at all. And for that inspiration and um, to come from that experience is just incredible. I mean, at the time I was in a dead end a little bit. I was, I was failing in that time because I tried to be that one person who does it all, who knows it all. Uh, I was used to get a question and I was used to provide the answer. Uh, And uh, I went into that house and, Based on that experience I, 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 I told you about, I came back and I changed my leadership next Monday. And uh, the Monday after that weekend, when I got the first question, I did not just answer it. I turned the question around and got a lot of surprises in that respect. But I realized that asking the question back to say, Mike, if you ask me a question and if I would be your boss, instead of giving you the answer but asking you back, Mike, what do you think about that? You know the problem better than I do. And I'm so much interested, not just give me the problem, but what you think, what you would do to solve it, what you may need to solve it. That's much more my role. And this is where I felt and kind of experienced afterwards. This is where dynamics really comes into place and where I think people are much more motivated because they are taken serious in their own thoughts. So that was that enlightening experience I I took away from from the Rubens house. Thank you so much for sharing that. So if you could walk us through the, you know, and again, that's an inflection point in your career where you went and found inspiration, not knowing you were walking into a situation where you would see clarity. We went in there because it was raining and my wife was (laughs) pregnant and she didn't want to walk anymore. So, okay. Let's watch some art. What? Wow. How, how bad Isn't could it incredible? be? No, seriously. So th- that's why I believe in coincidence <laughs> as well. Yeah. So uh, I, that was not planned as much as I could make it up now, but it was not. It was sheer coincidence. Mm. And you also mentioned, um, now I know that you happen to be a music and symphony enthusiast. Yeah. Um, and are there other things as a leader that has high intensity that brings lots of opportunity and challenges to yourself and to your team that you do to find relaxation, to um, go and think and have some calm and uh, into the state of chaos that is work life in many cases? Yes, I mean, you, you mentioned some of the inspiration in, in, in art, which was more a coincidence. Uh, the one in music is much more systematic and planned because I just enjoy and I enjoy watching a conductor playing the orchestra, which is a very tangible example of a leadership and watching someone leading in that respect. Um, there is a lot of other things. Um, one of the key things that I've learned from one of my mentors is getting out of the hamster wheel, sit down and think. And if thinking is difficult, start writing because then the writing becomes thinking. And uh, we all like to be busy and we are busy. We get phone calls, we get emails, we get people walking into the office. I think it's a discipline to take those breaks of thinking and planning. That's one thing. Uh, Reading is another inspiration to me in um, philosophy and also psychology. Why psychology? Well, I, I, I believe business is people. Uh, it's probably an oversimplifying formula, uh, especially in the age of digitalization and Internet of Things and so on. But at the end, business is conducted by people for people. And uh, we are complex uh, brains and uh, complex with a complex psychology. So I found a lot of inspiration, I have to admit, in, in, in psychology with a gentleman called uh, Professor Dörner. Uh, he wrote a great book. Um, I do not know whether it's available in English, but uh, the German title, if I translate it, is, uh, is the, uh, the Logic of Failure. I mean, we don't like really to talk about failure and we try to learn from success, but mistakes and failure are a very, very fruitful source for learning. And there was quite some inspiring things, um, especially they turn around the psychology of failures and the psychology of thinking and the traps of thinking, overconfidence of teams, and so on and so on. So I always found that very uh, inspirational, uh, together with the breaks, together with the symphony. Uh, and uh, 
I like road cycling and that's a lot of me time where no one calls and no one talks to me. So I pedal and think or sometimes just pedal and don't even think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. There's there's a individual who recently shared with me about, you know, his he's another CEO and he shared about um, a silence retreat, which I was unfamiliar with. Um, what does it mean? It means go, basically from Friday after dinner until Sunday, you don't speak. And okay. it's collecting and you're around people and not speaking. And someone like myself, that right. would be very, very difficult. But right. he challenged me to think about doing that at some point. Um, and then you, I know you've done long cross-country type cycling experiences yes. as a way to get out, which again, I didn't realize there were organizations that actually put those types of things together. Yeah. Um, and it's such, it's always an inspiration to me um, as it is to yourself and others to learn what others do to find rest, to rejuvenate, um, you know, to focus on relationships and, um, and to focus on themselves. Yeah. We have to take care of ourselves. I mean, from my personal career perspective, um, it, it became obvious in the second half last year, so second half 2017, that there will be a big decision taken coming up in, in terms of my second half time in career. And I chose that nine days bike ride uh, as a break. And, you know, with, with being busy in, in job, with family, in the community, emails, phone calls, um, I think that discipline to take breaks for thinking and also really take breaks physically and mentally are, are a key of productivity. And I sometimes almost suffer to see people who don't get it, who are proud to not take vacation, to not take time off, to work 24-7. This is not sustainable. And productivity suffers, effectiveness suffers. And I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that those breaks are needed. And uh, I cannot claim that I'm the best in those too. I'm sometimes not taking enough breaks during the day to even eat or things like that. But uh, I try to really take good breaks over the weekend, uh, get some me time, no talk time, sometimes even no thinking time. Right. Right. Uh, the pedaling on the on the bike really helps, and I think that's that's key as well. Yeah. A few years back, I began going through a journey personally. Um, to really think through what life planning looked like and figuring out uh, as I moved into my next step in my career of taking over a family business, um, you know, what were my values? What were my regimens? Really defining those. What's my mission statement? Reading three different books that, you know, covered, um, which I'll put in the show notes. One um, was um, called Over overworked and overwhelmed, um, the mindfulness alternative by Scott Eblen, which one of my advisors had recommended I read. Um, then I went through, um, another book called living forward by Michael Hyatt. Um, and then I also went through a leadership conference. Uh, we actually took a whole team of people up to Queens, New York right. to attend the emotionally healthy leadership conference. And, um, all three of those that, you know, like I enjoy grilling, I enjoy spending time with my family, yeah. and I really enjoy socializing just with friends and finding relaxation and conversation. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, just the other day, I told Amber at the end of a work week um, that like the, you know, we had a great week, but the best part was cooking, actually grilling and having vegetables going and steaks going and um, and we all find relaxation in various things. Exactly. And I think there are always those both both poles or those both sides of it. Um, uh, a leadership job, uh, I think, is a very extrovert job because the key tool is talking, writing, meeting uh, with people. And that, that, um, that requires a lot of energy. And whether you're introvert or not, or an extrovert, doesn't really matter. The job itself is, is, is extrovert. Because it's about working with people, talking to people, uh, which is high energetic at that point of time and requires a lot of energy. I think on the other hand, we need time of relaxation and maybe time of not talk and have that me time, have time with the family and even take the brain to something completely different, which is not business, right? Which could be the arts, which could be sports or whatever that is. And I think the balance of those both poles are, are very important. And I, 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 I watched a, a TED talk, it's already a little while ago, it was uh, with a professor, 
who talked about introverts and extroverts. And uh, it was a great TED talk. And he said, hey, everyone here would think I'm an extrovert, right? And I said, I'm not, I'm an introvert. And, but my job is an extrovert. And I have to admit, sometimes performing my extrovert job, I take a break and go to the restroom, although I don't need to go to the restroom, but I need a short break to not talk and kind of settle for a second, regain energy before I go out again and perform an extrovert job. And that was very enlightening to me as well, that both are existing and both are right and both are a part of it. And it needs to be brought in kind of a balance. As it relates to, I know you've kind of dipped your toe. One, you've had a lot of success in acquisitions in family business, um, in private equity. How have you seen the dynamics of interactions between, again, the operations and structure and approaches and values come out in a family business that's growing, that's acquiring, that's buying, that's selling, that's expanding? And then you've also had you've touched inside of private equity and have been in those types of cultures and environments that can you, any reflection points or inflection points that you've experienced that you could share with those listening? Sure. Um, I mean, certainly um, where, where I felt both um, family owned businesses as well as private equity providing a lot of freedom of action, whereas, and that may sound a little stereotype, but I think there is always some truth in stereotype that the family business may have, that longer-term perspective investment horizon, whereas the one in private equity may be a little bit shorter term. Um, What I've experienced is that um, as a difference that some of the the tougher decisions on the private equity side are taken quicker than maybe in family-owned businesses, maybe because family-owned business loyalty maybe very strong value where sometimes such kind of tough decisions, especially people decisions, are not just quickly made. And I do not want to say they're just easily made on the private equity side, but there is a little bit of different, let's say, balance balance in there. Um, a key difference I perceived uh, is that a lot of family-owned businesses, especially in Germany, do not offer any equity uh, options for their key executives, for example. I don't want to say whether it's right or wrong. That's a key difference to family businesses in the United States. So that kind of skin in the game, I think, makes a big difference. And obviously, with a lot of executives in private equity, uh, private equity, they want to have the executive really bring money to the table and have skin in the game, like like they call it, which I think is right and good. Because then it's not just other people's money. It's your own money, maybe not. 100%, but some of your own money. And I think that brings another drive and discipline and another perspective to the business. So these are maybe come some of those things that come into my mind. Yeah, to, to yeah it was question. recently, um, you know, one, I think it, it what you just framed up helps you not just think, but act like an owner. Mm-hmm. If you're in an environment where you, it's very healthy to, you know, where people just naturally, you hire people who yep. naturally think and operate like an owner, wonderful. Um, but people need to be incentivized for growth. Yes. And um, and making sure either your comp plans or your equity or long-term incentive program right. is designed to achieve the goals you need it help you need it to help you design right. and achieve. Um, the other dynamic I was reading an article just recently about the tenure of president and CEOs inside of private equity organizations. And its argument was that president and CEOs leave and poor timing, uh, which erodes equity value. Um, and I'll, the thesis I walked away from the article is that these environments don't create a culture and a safe, safe and challenging, um, you know, you can provide both, but a, a healthy place for that president and CEO to thrive, right? So a lot of these, some environments inside of private equity are very healthy and allow the CEO to thrive. Many are not. And people just basically hit the out button, right? At some point, usually as you build up to, as you build up to exit, the stress levels continue to increase and enhance and people leave. Have you seen any you know, type of environments or walked into any environments where that's been the case or 
uh, what have been what would be your just takeaway about that that level of intensity? I mean, my takeaway from the last couple of months, uh, having been able to make quite some experience with private equity, is that um, I didn't want to say the private equity that it's all the same, but it's very there are very very large differences in terms of, um, for example, some private equity firms have rather the philosophy once they make an acquisition that they change the management team and bring their own management team and implement their own management team in there. Whereas some others say, no, the key is we keep and retain the management team, for example. Um, there are very big differences in terms of, uh, or quite some differences in terms of the investment horizon. I've, I've learned about the concept of the family offices who have tend to have a longer investment horizon. Uh, where it is not about, okay, let's divest again in five or seven years, but to really see that as a very long-term investment, still with a claim to be successful, obviously. It's it's about money, right? It's an investment which should uh, generate some return. But the investment horizon, for example, is, is very different. There are, uh, I've, I've got to know some private equity firms who do not look for a company to buy and then, go out and look for leadership. They engage with leaders first and with those leaders then look for the right M&As that they do. So uh, the, the point is the variety of private equity in terms of how they go to market, how they do business, and a lot of different things is much, much bigger than I thought it was. So that's why I've really changed my mind a little bit in a way that um, it's much more fragmented or much more differentiated than I thought uh, yeah, I think the brand and what we've experienced, we've worked with private equity now for probably 12 years, maybe a little longer. And to your point, there's a different culture and approach to every single leadership team like there is ever any single organization. Exactly. exactly. So the label of private equity is a, really a category. And inside that category, understanding how you lead, how you operate organizations, how you identify leaders, how you, what's your past success? What does that look like? Talking to other leaders and understanding the cultures that they've had as those, those individuals have been investors um, and getting that right, just like getting the right team right, right. is critically important yes. and the blends of that. Yeah. Daniel, could you share a little bit about, I know um, in our dialogues, digitalization, we've talked about digitalization and the impact of that on business and you um, have really taken that to heart and begun investing both pro professionally and personally in that. Can you share a little bit about that journey and why and what you're seeing from the topic of digital digitalization that our listeners may find great benefit in? Sure. Um, yeah, I've just been recently at the uh, at an executive um, program at Harvard about um, driving digital strategies. Um, to further enhance my own toolbox and understanding. And uh, I did that because over the last couple of years, I've seen how much the internet, the technologies, internet of things, I mean, you name it, is changing entire industries uh, and uh, requires companies to change their business models, develop their business models, uh, because things are digitalized, things are automated, um, and uh, I think that's a big challenge to a lot of companies, to a lot of industries uh, in that respect. So, and further than that, it's not just new business models coming up and uh, existing business models changing, but it's also changing significantly the way we work. I mean, go back 10 years, so the iPhone now is 10 years old or meantime 11 or 12 or whatever, how much that changed the way we communicate, the way we work. Um, and uh, the way we work uh, and so on is going to change significantly as well. And uh, I think that has great opportunities, uh, but it also has um, big challenges. A lot of the jobs as we know them today will not exist anymore in, in 10 years, 20 years, or maybe shorter. Think about autonomous driving, for example. What is that going to do to uh, truck drivers? What does Uber to the cab drivers? What if that's at one point of time going to be autonomously driving cars and so on and so on. Um, I've read an article about uh, Mercedes. They're, they're planning a, a um, assembly factory for cars. There is no single person. It's all robotics. It's all automated. 
um, Amazon thinks the same in terms of distribution centers. So I think we're 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 um, we're heading into. I don't want to compare it with the industrial revolution and steam, but maybe something pretty similar like that. Um, with all the challenges and all the opportunities there. Mm-hmm. How do businesses evaluate digital opportunities and transformation inside their own companies? Where do you recommend they start or begin thinking about that for the future? I mean, my, my recommendation and my approach is to see digitalization not as an IT topic, but as a business topic. Like I, by the way, and you know that I see HR not as an administrative function, but a business function. Uh, when we started to work together with the first search I did with you and your firm, I was looking uh, for a VP HR f- as a business partner to me and all the hiring managers. So the point to your question in here, digitalization is IT, but IT is the tool. It's not a purpose. So in that respect, I would strongly recommend to take a business approach. How are those tools and technologies able to create better value to customers, create new value to customers that does not exist without that technology, without those tools? And at the same time, how does those technologies and tools allow the company to perform more efficient, more productive? And that takes really a mindset where uh, and this is not in disrespect, disrespect to any IT departments uh, and IT people, but um, digitalization makes this really a strategic topic, a business topic in that respect, because it's changing the business model potentially with new and better value to customers, um, and uh, it's developing and changing strategies. Yeah, we share often with customers all over the world that if culture, employment experience, and talent is not, one, it's not a part of the strategic conversation, you have a problem. It needs to be about, it needs to be in the strategic conversation and you need to be investing money, resources, people, and energy against the topic of talent, culture, employment experience. And you would say the same with digitalization. It needs to be in that that level of dialogue. Absolutely. And I think from an HR perspective, from a talent perspective, the key question is what kind of talent do you need for your business to succeed those challenges and and harvest the opportunities of digitalizing your business or any other business? And um, that requires completely different and new talents than what we're using that, that we used to hire or acquire and retain for doing the business the way we do today. Whether this is um, data analytics, for example, whether this is in IT, uh, whether this is people who bring those skill sets and can really transition and perform that and connect it to strategy. So I think this brings big questions about talent management. What is the exact talent needed to succeed that digital digitalization? We'll provide um, that program in our show notes as well. Are there any others? Have you participated in any others, uh, digitalization programs such as that? Uh, I did uh, at the one in Harvard um, early this year. Uh, I'm going to join a similar program at Columbia Business School in in fall. Um, Like I said, for the exact same reason, number one, I take a break Mm -hmm. to think and learn. Um, I'm in my early 40s, so whatever I know today will not last for the next 20 years to be successful as a leader. So I want to um, to enhance and um, enrich my brain with that kind of understanding and understand what those technologies, what digitalization, what Internet of Things, and so on and so on, means for the job I'm performing, the leadership role I'm performing, and the business I'm in, and the industry I'm in. And, what opportunities um, can we really develop and what values to customers can we generate? New values, better values that give uh, us uh, a competitive advantage. Daniel, I have thoroughly enjoyed our time today, but also our time over the last several years, getting to know you, creating a friendship together, doing business together, enjoying life together, um, transforming organizations together, building the right teams, 
Um, so thank you for this time and investment here and your investment into me as a leader and into our organization over the last several years. Thank you very much, um, Mike. I really appreciate the conversation and uh, I hope I could provide some value and share some valuable experience I have made. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Yeah, it's it's a it always is a pleasure interacting with leaders who understand the concepts and do um, do leadership well, right? Lead well. Um, and then to have affirmation from those around you say, you know, I grow in every conversation. And as you just stated, that it's not just about you, it's about the people in the room and helping elevate the entire organization. So thank you for leading well. Um, thank you for the time today and these great insights. And we hope our listeners are able to reflect on their own personal journeys and stories and, and see themselves in many aspects of these conversations. The pleasure is on my side, Mike. And uh, like I said, I, I hope it was valuable. And I, I would look forward to some feedback. And uh, I would look forward to probably some disagreement. I don't claim to be right. Uh, I'm learning as well. So uh, I hope that there is a chance for some feedback from the listeners as well to what we discussed today. Wonderful. Well, please share your feedback. We'll provide um, show notes of several ideas and links and um, here today. And uh, make sure you share this with your friends, your colleagues, and your organization. Uh, big thanks to Daniel Wachter for being with us today. And a big thanks for you, uh, to all of you listening in. We look forward to our uh, next conversation. Have a wonderful day, and we will talk soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Sound Press, produced by Chris Medine of New Fidelity Studios and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Medine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr. We are recorded in Greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We're supported by our listeners from all around the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is part of the Talent Magnet Institute and Centennial. You can reach me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Mike Sipple Jr. Find us in your favorite podcast app, or you can visit us online at talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com to subscribe, leave a review, and share with a colleague. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.